This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. Hey, before I begin, I need to share a couple things with you. When we're dealing with subjects like this that many of us have not had a whole lot of experience with because of our upbringing or whatever, part of the job of a pastor is deconstruction and construction. In other words, every one of us have certain opinions about things that have been told to us, or we heard it somewhere, or it sounded good, or, or some pastor told us, or we learned in school, or something of that nature. And we come to God's Word not with an open mind sometimes, not with a blank slate, but we come to God's Word with preconceived notions, sincerely held convictions that we believe are true. And some of those convictions are true, based on Scripture, and some of those convictions aren't even in my own life. And so there has to be a deconstruction process where what happens is we know what we believe and we see what the Word says, and then we're faced with a crisis. Do I hold on to what I believe that seems to be contrary to what the Word says, or do I step out in faith and trust and see if God's going to move me in a new direction? And then there's a reconstruction process where we basically look at God's Word for what it says, and then the choice is yours. choice is mine. We either believe it or we don't. We either receive the blessings that come with believing God's Word or receive the lack of blessings or the curses that come by rejecting it. For the last couple weeks now, we've been kind of going through that process, um, looking at God's Word. And I don't know what your sincerely held convictions are, but if they are contrary to what the Word is showing us here, then there's a deconstruction that has to take place. And then we have to embrace the Word for what it says and become like it says we are. And there's no more difficult area in understanding that as in the area of spiritual gifts. So let me, uh, let me begin by praying for us. Father, thank you for, for your love. Thank you for the fact that you, you chose us out of eternity for no other reason than the fact that you wanted to for your good pleasure. Lord, that you decided to come live inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit, that you paid the penalty for our sins through the death of your Son. And Lord, that you've equipped us with everything so that your word says that we are complete in you. Lord, I don't know how to thank you for that. And I guess the best we can do is to, is to be what you've created us to be, to, to use what you've given us, to accept what you say about us, and just to trust you, not not just for tomorrow, but to trust you for today. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name that you'll take authority over Satan and his demons, to bind, rebuke, cast them out of our gathering right now. And Lord, Holy Spirit, would you fill us to the point of overflowing? Fill us and teach us about these gifts and teach us about you. And I will thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you grew up in a Baptist church and God called you into the ministry and you decided to go to a Baptist seminary, which you would go to a Baptist seminary if you grew up in a Baptist church, you would graduate most likely a Baptist. Wouldn't you agree? If you uh, grew up in a Reformed church and went to a Reformed seminary, you would graduate having a more Reformed view of, of salvation and sovereignty of God because that's really what you've been taught. That's that's all you know. If you grew up in a church of God or an assembly of God or something like that church and you went to one of their seminaries and when you graduated, you probably wouldn't want to pastor a Baptist church. You'd want to pastor a church like you've always been in your whole life and always learned what they, they taught you in seminary. And, and what happens is when we graduate from these institutions, which spend three or four years showing us that their position is right by Scripture, we have a tendency of going, yeah, I got it. I got it. I, I understand this, and everybody else is wrong. But that's not really true, because as I've shared with you before, some of the, the, the nuances that uh, 
that we're taught just to hold on to these theological positions do, do real damage to the Scripture. I don't believe that because I'm a Reformed or I'm a Dispensationalist or I'm an Amillennialist or I'm a uh, believe in a pre-trib, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so therefore, I have to interpret the Scriptures based on that frame of reference and I will defend my position theologically even if it contradicts Scripture. And when it comes to these gifts of the Spirit, we have a tendency as former Baptists or as non-Pentecostals or, or whatever, we have a tendency of, no, no, I don't even want to study those passages. I don't even want to deal with that kind of stuff because I have this preconceived notion in my mind, maybe based on abuses I've seen for people who claim to have those gifts, and I don't want to be like them. And none of that is true. Just because somebody does something wrong with the truth does not make the truth wrong. Agree? As we've shared, as we began this, there are gifts here that belong to you. There are gifts that belong to me. I firmly convinced that there's, there's not a cessation of these gifts, and I should, we went in detail on that a couple weeks ago, that these gifts still apply to the church today. They still apply in here. They still apply to you and I because God's word is true, and there's, there's nothing in here that says that they were done away with. There are deductions we can make based on history or taking this half verse and, and combining with this verse over here that can lead to that conclusion, but there are deductions we can make that lead to other conclusions. In order for you to receive what belongs to you, you have to have faith. You have to believe that it's yours. It says in order for you to function in your gifts, this is the primary point of all of this, you have to believe you actually have them and that God wants to use them in your life for the edification of this church and to bring glory to his name. Why do I believe that? Because the word says so right here. And, and elsewhere. And so if I don't believe his word because it makes me feel uncomfortable or I was taught different or my parents believed different or I've deducted something different from that, I'm in error because his word is true even if I disagree with it. Amen? It all ends and begins with faith. And these are the passages, verse 8 through 10. Well, verse 7, of course. For the manifestation or expression of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit or benefit of all. If I am in Christ, I am one of these each ones. And the Holy Spirit wants to manifest himself or express himself in me and in you and corporately the church. Well, in what way? For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. And I, I'm kind of comfortable with those. To another gift of healings by the same Spirit, a little less comfortable. To another the working of miracles, very uncomfortable. To another prophecy, to discerning of spirits, whatever that means. And then the most controversial ones, to another different kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as God wills. Now, we've talked about the natural grouping of these based on the Greek word alos and heteros. And we've already shown how in, in detail, I've gone over this week after week after week, that these are kind of grouped based on alos, which is um, another of a same kind, versus heteros, which is another of a different kind. To, um, to basically look at these. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, and to another alos of the same kind is given the word of knowledge through the same spirit. But to another heteros of a different kind as the ones we've already listed, another faith by the same spirit, and to another alos of the same kind as the one that has faith, we have gifts of healings and another working of miracles to another prophecy to another discerning of spirits and to another heteros now of a different kind. We have tongues and interpretation of tongues. And so based on just the heteros and alos natural groupings here, we have group one, <clears throat> word of wisdom, word of knowledge, makes sense. Somebody who receives wisdom and knowledge, a, a word of knowledge is a communication gift. It makes sense that those would kind of be grouped together, same kind of person, type of person, same temperament would have that gifting. Group two, of course, is the ones that uh, we feel a little uncomfortable about. 
We have faith, gifts of healings, working of miracles, prophecy and discerning of spirits. And it makes sense that the people who who exhibit these kind of gifts would also have the foundation of that being faith. And all this is, is based on this natural grouping. And then, of course, group three, and to another heteros, uh, different kinds of tongues, and to another allos, like the ones that has a different kind of tongues, the interpretation of tongues. Makes sense that if someone claims to have the gift of a, of a, a different kind of tongues, is somebody kind of like that, or the same kind of person, same temperament, same gifting, would have an interpretation of tongues. Why would somebody who knows, has no gifting in tongues be used to interpret something they're clueless about. Make sense? But there's another grouping here. And this is where it gets, uh, this is where it gets really amazing. There's a gift, there's a grouping based on nonverbal and verbal gifts. Now, we're not going to talk about the first two, which is um, uh, word of uh, knowledge and uh, the word of wisdom. We've already kind of dealt with those. Those are verbal gifts. They're communication gifts because the word is logos, talking about a spoken word. We're just going to begin with group two and group three and show you the grouping here between verbal and nonverbal gifts. We'll look at the nonverbal first. Very easy. We have faith. That's a nonverbal gift. That's just something that God gives us to give us some sort of extraordinary faith in circumstances that we have. And we know people who have lived that way or been through circumstances that way, or you have experienced that maybe fleeting yourself where this is crisis going on and I don't know what I'm going to do. And God just gives you incredible faith during a bad report from the doctor or a loss of job or a fracture of a family to, to persevere through that faith you've never had before. But now he's blessed you with that, that after the crisis is over, maybe that faith is gone. Yeah, that was a gift of faith he gave me to believe something and to live something based on his word. We have gifts of healings and gifts working in miracles. These aren't verbal gifts. These are action gifts. But then we have the verbal gifts. And as I've started going through this, I've had about a dozen people come up to me and say, hey, this is really great, but why don't we get to the tongues part? Because that's the, that's the part I want to know about. That, that's the confusing part. Help me with the tongues part. And, and this is all grouped together. Then the verbal gifts are prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, and tongues, or interpretation of tongues. And what I want you to know that in this grouping, this four verbal gifts that are in, in group two and group three, all of these are tied together. All of these work together as one. You know, dis- discerning of spirits is pretty much what, uh, what the Bereans did in Acts 17.11. In Acts 17.11, Paul and Barnabas are there, and it says in that passage, of course, Chuck Missler's life verse, it says that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures daily to see what they were being taught was true. In other words, they wanted to discern what they were being taught, whether that is the spirit of God or the spirit of this world. And that's pretty much, we're going to get to this next week, but pretty much that's what discerning of spirits is, is to be able to, to be in a situation where verbal gifts are being communicated here and be able to know whether or not this is of God or not of God. These are all tied together. Prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And the amazing thing about this is that prophecy and tongues just go hand in hand. Prophecy and tongues are, are tied together that you cannot really separate them and say, well, well, that's prophecy and that's tongues. Prophecy I'm okay with as long as prophecy is not predictive. As long as prophecy is like just proclaiming the glories of God, I feel comfortable with that because then I can say prophecy is kind of like preaching, but it's not. Because with preaching, you have preparation. With prophecy, it's spontaneous. With preaching, I'm coming to you now and I'm proclaiming God's word, but I have studied and I have prayed and I prepared and I've got a PowerPoint and I've got my Bible all marked up and I've got a a thing I'm going to read to you at the very end. There's nothing spontaneous about this. Yes, God can use this and I'm praying God will fill me and what comes across is all of God, but this is not prophecy. Prophecy is when something happens spontaneously, even if you don't look at it as predictive, spontaneously where a message comes from God and I'm proclaiming thus saith the Lord or or, here's what I hear God saying or something of that nature. It's not preaching. It's something far more spiritual. And then you have discerning of spirits and different kinds of tongues and interpretation of tongues, but prophecy and tongues are are like Siamese twins. And you find this all through the scripture in the New Testament. Again, 
just in the passage we're looking at now. For one has given the word of wisdom, to another word of knowledge, to another faith, to another gifts of healings by the same spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues and interpretation of tongues. Prophecy, tongues. Prophecy, tongues. We even have this in, a, in the book of Acts. I'm going to show you in just a second. But, but let's define our terms. What does prophecy mean as used in this context? Prophecy means particularly prediction, the foretelling of future events, including the declaration, exhortations, and warnings uttered by the prophets while acting under divine influence. It may they are utterances under the immediate divine inspiration, delivering inspired exhortations, instructions, or warnings. Yeah, I know, but I've seen a lot of false prophets, and I see people say things like, oh, this is going to happen, and the election's going to go this way, and there's going to be a big tsunami that hits you know, Chicago, which is impossible, you know, and then stuff never really happens. And we're, not, we're not talking about people who give false prophets, prophecies or claim to be prophets. That's what discerning of spirits is all about. What we're talking about is what the Scripture says these gifts involved. And one of the gifts is prophecy. Let me show you how prophecy and tongues are tied together. And this is, again, we're going to delve more into tongues in the next couple of weeks. But, but in the very beginning, we have Acts chapter 2, where the whole tongue phenomena began. This is when the day of Pentecost had fully come, and this is the time that God decided to fulfill his promise, where the Holy Spirit would come and reside with the church. The mystery, as Ephesians says, of the Old Testament, now revealed in the New Testament. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, matter of fact, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2 here. You can follow me as I do this. At fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. It's really amazing how every time you see God move in the book of Acts, they were all in one accord. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues. These tongues. Why tongues? Why couldn't it have been like a goat or a lamb or a... Hudcap or something of that. I don't know. This is what God's doing, showing us how things were. Divided tongues as a fire that sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we know what happens. There's Jews there in Jerusalem, and the next couple of verses tell us all these different dialects that they hear, and all of a sudden there's a proclamation of the gospel, and they said, these guys must be drunk. And verse number 14 says that Peter stands up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these men, these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. What is happening here in Acts chapter 2 was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And look at the next two verses. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. How will I know? How will we know when that takes place, God, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy? doesn't say that they'll live righteous lives. It doesn't say that they'll raise the dead or heal the sick or they'll you know, become missionaries or tithe 20% or all the stuff we kind of associated with it. What it says is when the Holy Spirit comes, when these tongues take place, when, when this happens, there's a connection here because when God's Holy Spirit comes, the first sign will be that your sons and daughters will prophesy. This is from Joel now. Your young men will see dreams and your old uh, will see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Again, God, what is the sign? And they shall prophesy. Over and over and over again, we see, we see this picture of God's Holy Spirit being poured out, people being filled with the Holy Spirit. We see this even in the Old Testament. Even a carnal man like Saul, when he was hiding and he didn't you know, want to be the king and and with all the sin in his life, that when, uh, when God came upon him, all of a sudden, he prophesied. Do you remember? Prophesied. We see this all the time. Holy Spirit comes, people prophesy. Even in the New Testament, if you would go, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I want you to follow along with me as we do this. And I want you to see the connection between prophecy and tongues, between these verbal gifts. Verse 12, 
Paul begins to make application on the stuff he's just said. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. The Christ is made up of many members. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. We're going to talk about the difference between baptism in the spirit and filled with the spirit and all that kind of stuff in times in the weeks to come. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Who? Well, everybody. It comes to Christ. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we have all been made to drink into one spirit. We are baptized, which is immersed, and now we're filled by drinking. It's like you want to sum these two words over, baptize and drink into one spirit. We are saturated with the Holy Spirit, absolutely saturated on the outside and on the inside. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Logically, verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And each of those members have gifts. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And because of that, you have to understand, in the book of, of 1 Corinthians especially, uh, beginning in verse num chapter number 4, you'll watch Paul change subjects really quick. Boom, boom, boom. boom. And there's just no connection between these. And the idea is the fact is Paul has received a whole bunch of questions that the church in Corinth had, which was struggling with many things. And as you're going through this, he's answering those questions. That question, this question, that question, this question, this question. There's schisms going on in the church. There's sin going on in the church. There's people playing one-upmanship in the church. There's lazy people in the church. And so he's, he's dealing with all of these different issues. Here's one of them, verse 21. And if the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. We're all together. We're all one. We all have gifts of varying degrees in each of us that God is positioned exactly as he wants. Therefore, as one body, verse 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Okay, I got the teaching, Paul, but what does this have to do with spiritual gifts? And then he brings it home in verse number 28. And God has appointed those in the church, first apostles, second prophets. These aren't preachers. These are prophets. Third, teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Okay, so do, do we, does everybody have these same gifts or do, do people have different gifts? Verse 29, are all apostles? Now, in the Greek, it's hard in the English. Um, the the uh, New American Standard does a better job at this, but in, in the Greek, when you're asking a question that the answer is obviously no, in the, in the English sometimes it doesn't convey that. The, the NASB in this particular situation does, and it says something like this, are all, apostles, all aren't apostles, are they? Well, no. All aren't prophets, are they? Well, no, because the assumption is no. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have the gift of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Implied. Are some apostles? Well, yes, but not all. Are some prophets? Well, yes. Are some teachers? Got no problem with that. Are some workers of miracles? Kind of get strange with that one. But the answer is some are yes. Some have gifts of healings. Some speak with tongues. Some interpret, but not all. Verse 31. What am I supposed to do with all of this? 
but earnestly desire the best of the greater gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And then we break into the love chapter. But you've got to understand what that love chapter is. It's in contrast to spiritual gifts. Here's all the spiritual gifts. Here's how the church is struggling, saying, you know, I have this gift and you have this gift and my gift is better than yours, so you're not needed in the body anymore. And Paul dresses them down for that. And then he says, look, we're all different. We're all in the body. We all have these different gifts. I want you to desire spiritual gifts, but not play one-upmanship because the greatest of all of those in the, regarding these spiritual gifts is love. And then he goes on to, to give that incredible passage that we read it at every wedding. Chapter 13. Lord, I speak with the tongues... Prophecy, tongues of men and angels, and had not love, I had become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, you can't even understand what I'm saying. I'm just a gong if I don't have love. Though I had the gift of prophecy, always connected with tongues, and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and though I have faith that I can remove mountains, listing these gifts here, and had not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, agape, it profits me nothing. Why? Because love transcends this. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not, does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, which the Corinthians were doing that Paul already talked about in the last chapter. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, now we're back to the gifts, they will fail. Very next one, where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, and we've talked about that, Cessationists believe the perfect is the word of God, which doesn't hold up grammatically. But when Christ comes, who is the perfect, there's no need for these gifts because we're face to face with him. For when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a matter dimly, but then when the perfect comes, when Christ comes face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall be known, but then I shall know just as I am known. That does not happen when you have the Bible sitting in your lap. I don't know Christ like I am known by him until he comes. And now there abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, you have explained the gifts You've answered the questions that the Corinthians were having that we have in the church today about what gift is more important than other gifts. And I speak in tongues and you don't speak in tongues. And so I'm special and you're not. You know, I got a second blessing and you're still on your first blessing and all that kind of stuff. And, and then he says, no, we're, we're, you know, we're all part of the body, but we're all different. Love should permeate all of that. But then he goes back to gifts. Then he jumps right back to, to the topic at hand. And through the next chapter... It's all about prophecy in tongues, prophecy in tongues, prophecy in tongues. It's not gifts of healings. It's not gifts of miracles. It's not faith. It's not word of knowledge. It's not word of wisdom. It's not discerning of spirits. It's prophecy tongues, prophecy tongues, prophecy tongues, because they're all tied together in one. Chapter 14, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Well, what gifts should I desire? Especially that you prophesy. Really? Why? Because when I prophesy, what's happening is God is giving me a message that I'm proclaiming to others. It may be a personal message. It may be, it may be a, a message of exhortation or encouragement. It may, be, it may be a whole lot of things. As a matter of fact, verse 3 tells us exactly what prophecy is all about. First, verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue, contrary to prophecy, does not speak to men but to God. But no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks, one, edification, two, exhortation, three, comfort to men. When someone has the gift of prophecy, they are speaking edification, comfort, exhortation, encouragement to others. Well, that's never happened to me, and that's never happened to anybody that I know, and, and I've been in the church my whole life, and no, my mom doesn't believe it, my dad doesn't believe it, my pastor doesn't believe it, nobody believes it. Well, that doesn't mean it's not true because the scripture lays it out for us. So I was looking for an example to share with you. And I was thinking, okay, I could get a million different examples from people that you wouldn't respect. 
um, people that maybe have questionable backgrounds that you don't really know. So I figured, let me, let me find somebody who spent his whole life as a, as a, as a preacher of the gospel without, without scandal, without fail. And let, let me pick somebody who didn't even live in our dispensation, but he lived back in the Philadelphia church age that everybody would know who never, ever, ever, ever could be accused of being a charismatic because he was anything but Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Fair enough? The Prince of Pastors in London. I mean, this guy was as, as orthodox as they come from Spurgeon exercising the gift of prophecy from his writings. While preaching in the hall on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, there is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning, and he took nine pence, and there was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. He's sitting in the congregation, and there's 2,000 people at the, you know, the tabernacle where he preached at, no amplification. You're sitting there, and he reaches out, and he points his finger to him, like point to Vic, points his finger and says this prophetic message about him. Here's this guy. This guy's a shoemaker. He leaves his shop open on Sunday. Last Sunday, he, or last Sabbath, he made nine pence, nine bucks, 90 bucks, and of that, 40 was profit. And you're selling your soul for 40 bucks. A city missionary, when going his round, met with this man and seeing that he was reading one of my sermons, asked the question, do you know Mr. Spurgeon? Yes, replied the man. I have every reason to know him. I've been to hear him and under his preaching by God's grace, I become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Shall I tell you how it happened? I went to the music hall and took my seat in the middle of the place. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me, and in his sermon he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays, and I did, sir. I should, have, I should not have minded that, but he also said I took nine pence the Sunday before and there was four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day, and four pence was just, was just the profit, and how he should know that I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first, I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards, I went and, was, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. Spurgeon then adds this comment. This is Spurgeon. I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed to somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea what I said was right, except that I believed that I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to friends, come, see the man who told me all the things I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent by God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. And not only so, but I've known many instances in which the thoughts of men have been revealed from the pulpit. I have, had sometime, I have sometimes seen persons nudge their neighbors with their elbows because they got a smart hit. And they have been heard to say when they were going out, the preacher told us just what we said to one another when we went out the door. Well, I don't believe the gift of prophecy exists. Spurgeon did, and he never preached about it, and he never promoted it. He never aligned himself with those camps. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon has examples of when God just reveals something to him about someone else. Back to verse 3. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to them. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I'm speaking in a tongue and a prayer language. There's, I don't know what I'm praying. My mind is unfruitful, but my spirit is praying. If I do that in a congregation, nobody knows what's going on unless somebody interprets. And when somebody interprets somebody's tongue, Paul says that becomes prophecy. It becomes a, a, a tangible message people can understand. Verse 4, he, he who speaks, watch how it's always tongues and prophecy. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues. Wow. 
but even more that you would prophesy. For he who prophesied is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets them they're the same, that the church may receive edification, because the purpose of this is for the church to be edified. But now, brethren, I come to you speaking with tongues. What shall I profit you? Unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. Everything, everything without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sound, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, and again, he's talking about a church setting here, an edification for others, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in this world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, I do not know the meaning of the language. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of a language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. I have gone to charismatic churches, and I have sat in their worship services, and a lot of them, not all of them, the ones I've experienced, like chaos, a bunch of people speaking in tongues, and I felt like a foreigner. I don't know what's going on. This is crazy. You know, and, and, and they're speaking, and I'm not edified. I'm feeling kind of weird here. And, and Paul talks about this not the way it's supposed to be. He even limits the amount of, of, of tongues and prophesying that can be done in a church service. Everything must be done in order for the edification of other people. And so based on my bad experience, I just chucked the whole thing out the window. I don't want any part of that. I've gone to pastors and had them lay hands on me and, so I can be baptized in the Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues. That's not biblical. But that's what they were teaching. And when nothing happened, they kept saying, well, just start making baby sounds. What? Say banana backwards. What? That's not biblical. And so I, 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 that's all, the whole thing's ridiculous. Throw it over here. I don't want to deal with these passages anymore. I have to deconstruct my way of thinking because in the Word of God, if you look what's going on here, it's, it's something totally different. Verse 12. So even you, Steve... Since you were zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. And therefore, it's not tongues, unless there's an interpretation, but it's prophecy. Therefore, verse 13, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. And what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving thanks? He does not understand what you say. I don't even, are you done? Have you, did you ask the Lord to bless the food? I have no clue what you just said. You could have called down fire from heaven or praise Satan. I got no clue what's going on here. How am I supposed to know when it's over? See the problems? Verse 17, for you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words with a tongue. Why? Because tongues are more private. And the fact is, you want to, that's something that you do, your prayer language and praise language to the Lord. And again, there are other kinds of tongues. We're going to deal with this in a lot more detail in the weeks to come. But in a church setting, what edifies the church is prophecy. God revealing something to somebody that it proclaims to the congregation. Or if a tongue is actually spoken in church, that the Holy Spirit brings somebody to interpret that tongue in a language we all understand, which turns that not into some sort of guttural, ecstatic utterance, but into prophecy. Make sense? Verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, and here's this strange verse in Isaiah 28. And what this verse talks about is a judgment that was brought on the people, brought on the people who were not of God, the foreign nations, because they couldn't even understand the word of God. And they realized by the fact that they were, were unable to understand the word of God that they were outside of his covenant and outside of his grace. And you won't even understand verse 22 and following until you get a handle on verse 21. And the law it is written with 
Men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. But what does that mean? It's really simple. Verse 22. Therefore, based on that verse we just looked at, tongues are for a sign. For who? Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. How in the world is a tongue a sign to an unbeliever? Now, I understand prophecy being a sign, but how is a tongue a sign? Simply this. When someone's praying in a tongue and a language that the people can't even understand, they realize that they're outside the covenant of God. They realize that something's going on here that they have no part of, and it should convict them of that. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like, it's what we've done to church today. We've tried to make church comfortable for lost people. And so what we do is we have these seeker-sensitive churches. We don't preach the gospel too hard because we want to invite seekers or lost people to come to church and kind of schmooze them in to the, to the, to the congregation by preaching something that they'll feel comfortable with. And the exactly opposite is true. And when a lost person comes to church, they should feel strange. Can, can a lost person worship? No. They don't even know who they're worshiping. The most they can do is watch us worship. And they watch us worship and they watch us be caught up in the, the ecstasy of knowing who God is and rejoicing in who he is. And, and maybe there's a prophetic message or maybe there's a tongue with an interpretation or who knows what's going on. But the fact is that all this stuff is going on they can't even relate to. It's a sign to them saying you're not part of the family. You're not a child of God. You're not part of, of what's happening here. Verse 22, therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Exactly. It's a word of exhortation and, and comfort. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? I was a believer and I said they were out of their mind. But if I'll prophesy, now I'm coming to a church now and people are prophesying like it was with Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I walk into the church full of my sin and full of my rebellion. Nobody knows, just as good as anybody else in here. And I'm just going to sit here in my anonymity. And then all of a sudden something happens and a prophecy is given that reveals the depth of the sin in my heart. All of a sudden now I'm convicted. All of a sudden now I'm broken. Look at the verse says, verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convicted by all and he is, or he is uh, convinced by all and he is convicted by all. And thus, how is he convicted? The secrets of his heart are revealed through prophecy. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm implied, each of you has a teaching implied, each has a tongue, each has a revelation, each has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. And then he starts laying out some rules here. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. In other words, this is not supposed to be some sort of chaotic deal like we experience today where people just go crazy because it feels good, you know, babbling on in some unknown language. No, if it's going to be in a tongue, there should be two, there should be three at the most, and somebody needs to interpret. If nobody interprets, if the God did not give the person an interpretation of that tongue, then the tongue is obviously not of the spirit they're supposed to be in the church. That's a discerning of spirits. We can see it in Scripture. Verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God because the purpose is edification of the church. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. That's discerning of spirits. Two or three prophets speak a prophetic utterance and the others judge whether or not that is biblical, whether or not it comes from the word of God. For you can all prophesy one by one and all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. I, I know I just I had it and it, it just had to come out. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Because your spirit is subject to you. And there's certain guidelines that need to be followed, prompting of the Holy Spirit. And this is where all this abuse has come from, where, where good people get hurt for just crazy reasons. Verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. 
Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. How are you doing, husbands? Training your wives. <laughs> Tough deal sometimes. Let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in church. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. If you think you're a prophet or spiritual, you need knowledge of the things I'm saying are prophecy coming from God to you. But if anyone is ignorant, just let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, listen here, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues and let all things be done decently and in order. Prophecy, tongues, prophecy, tongues, prophecy, tongues, over and over and over again. That's why you can't really, you can't really break these up without, without teaching about them as a whole. What is the purpose of the gift of prophecy? 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Having the discerning of spirits doesn't mean that you walk around and go, well, I'll see a demon in Debbie. That's, that's not what the verse talks about here. Have you ever heard that stuff? It's crazy. It's, that's not what it's talking about here. It's, it's talking about being able to discern between that which is godly and that which is not godly. But this raises a few questions. We're going to answer some of them today, and we're going to answer more of them next time. And the questions arise in an example of prophecy found in the book of Acts. So I want you to turn to Acts chapter 21. I want to share this with you really quick. We got Paul at Tyre and we got Paul at Thessalonica or at uh, Caesarea. And look at the events that take place. Let's, let's begin with verse number one. Acts 21. As it came to pass that when they had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Cause, and following that day to Rhodes, and from that day to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed on to the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. Now what happened in Tyre? And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they, the disciples, told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Not to go up to Jerusalem. So what's happening here? It doesn't say that they just said, hey, this is my opinion. They told Paul through the Spirit some sort of prophetic utterance, some sort of God revealing something to them for fall to Tim. And they said, do not go up to Jerusalem. By the way, do we know what happened in Jerusalem? And he was arrested and... You know, it was the rest of his life under lock and key. Then we moved to, well, let me go ahead, verse 5. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way, and they all accompanied us, the wives and the children, till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Don't go to Jerusalem, and Paul's still heading to Jerusalem. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted with the brethren and stayed with them one day. And on the next day, we, including Luke now, who are Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven that we find in, in the book of Acts, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Wow. Four virgin daughters who prophesied. Didn't I just read that a woman is to remain silent in church? But here we've got four virgin daughters that prophesy. So I guess it's okay for women to prophesy. It's just not to have an authoritative position in church, teaching and stuff of that nature. Questions? We have Philip's daughter. And then we have this guy named Agabus. I don't know if you know much about Agabus, but Agabus was this guy that God had already used, and he spoke a prophecy, a predicted prophecy, about a great famine coming to Jerusalem. And so Paul gathered churches, offerings from all the Gentile churches, and took it to Jerusalem based on this man's prophecy. Well, here he comes again. 
Verse 10, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we, Luke included, heard those things, both we and those of that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm already not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. No, no, no what's, what's happening here? What's happening here? I, I have some questions. First question, does this mean women can prophesy? And yes, you'll find in these passages... You know, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your men servants and maid servants shall prophesy. We will talk about that. Anna was a prophet in Luke 2. Well, what about 1 Corinthians 4, 2 through 40, and 1 Timothy 2, 15, 12 through 15, which talks about a, a woman having authority. This is not an authoritative position. This is a spontaneous gift God has given one of his children, who happens to be a woman, who proclaims that gift. Does the fact that they were unmarried virgins have anything to do with these daughters' ability to prophesy? Uh, no, not at all. That just happens to be how it is. It doesn't mean that you can only prophesy if you're an unmarried virgin. Anyway, we're going to talk more about that later. And what did they prophesy? We don't know. But it appears, based on the context of all of that, that they, they, they said, don't go to Jerusalem. And, and we don't know why. We don't know, we don't know what was going to happen. We later found out, but, but we don't know. What words did they have for Paul? Again, those words aren't listed, but the message is that they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Again, it's not the first time we encountered Agabus. Acts 11 talks about the fact that he had given a, a prophecy about the church in Jerusalem. But again, how did Agabus receive the word he spoke to Paul? We don't know. doesn't say. Maybe he got that word and actually met Paul, or maybe when he was with Paul that, that God gave him that word. It's kind of like in Acts chapter 13 when, when there are teachers and the prophets of the church are together and God speaks in their midst and tells them to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that he has. How did that happen? We don't know. We just know the result is that it did. How did Luke and the others respond to this prophecy? They made a cardinal error. The same error that you and I make. They interpreted the prophecy and then made application. God gives me a message, and I immediately, before I share that message, I'm interpreting that message, and then I'm giving application to that message. That's not my job. My job is just to communicate the message. You see the difference? How did Paul respond? He says, okay, thanks, but I'm going anyway. Now, wait a second. Um, are you, do you not believe it was a prophecy? Well, well, sure. Do you not believe God really spoke, as the Scripture says, spoke to the Holy Spirit? Well, sure. Are you disobeying the prophecy? Well, no. I'm relying on what God has already told me because what happened here is it appears that there's, you know, there's always the, the revelation and then there's the interpretation of that revelation and then there's an application of that and it is not the job of the person with the prophecy to make application. God said that the man who goes to Jerusalem is going to be bound this way. My interpretation is that man is you, and my application is don't go. That's all flesh. That's all flesh. Got to be really careful that we only communicate what God gives us to communicate. And if someone says, what does that mean? Our answer is, I don't know. You have to ask God about that. My job is just to deliver the message. Make sense? That's the difference between revelation, interpretation, and application. One of the reasons why many of us don't want anything to do with this kind of spiritual gift is the fact that we have all been to churches where the pastor has had a revelation, immediately interprets that revelation for us, gives us application for that, and then we feel bound to do what he said, otherwise somehow we're sinning against the saint. And none of that is true. None of that is true. That's, that's a human error that we find in all of this. Paul basically said, look, I've got my commission. 
thank you for revealing to me what uh, may happen, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to go. Maybe God just wanted him to be forewarned, to be prepared. But they made an application, don't go, don't go. And, and we're persuading and persuading, you're breaking my heart. Let me do what God's calling me to do. Fine, God's will be done. And none of that is biblical. And because we've experienced so much of the non-biblical part of true spiritual gifts, we have a tendency to run from them to our loss. What was the prophet responsible for communicating? And that's basically just the gift. When I'm reading this, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 1 and 39, should we desire the gift of prophecy? It says to. What about the gift of tongues? Are we supposed to desire that too? A lot of questions. And so instead of bringing this to a conclusion and an application, I'm going to show you some of the stuff that we're still going to deal with next week. Questions just about prophecy. Can anyone prophesy? prophesy? Or is it limited to just a few? You need to understand there's a difference between a prophet and someone who prophesies. Every prophet prophesies, but not everyone who prophesies is a prophet. You understand the difference? If you don't, we'll talk about that next week. Two, where does prophecy come from? What kind of information does God reveal in prophecy? Well, all I need from God, I don't need anything more than just His Bible. Well, true, there's no prophecy God's going to give you that's going to be contrary to His Word, but there are simple, simply some things in His Word that don't answer. There's questions that we have that aren't answered in His Word. God, I've been given two job opportunities, A and B. Which one should I take? You know, I can look for principles to guide me, but the fact is if they're all pretty much the same, God either says, I want you to take this one, or God says, you choose, or maybe God can reveal that to us through a prophecy. Who knows? There's some things in the Scripture, that are some areas of our life that, that sometimes you have to pray and have God speak to you directly. True? That's what a rhema is. And the fact is that uh, no prophecy from anybody contradicts Scripture, that's what discerning of spirit is all about. You know, I heard what you said, but that's not God at all. God doesn't want you to leave your wife because he wants you to be happy. Where does that come from? That's a sin. You know, God with a discerning of spirit calls it to account. Regarding Agabus, how can, we, how can God who is infallible reveal something that is fallible? Well, God didn't reveal anything that was infallible. Agabus interpreted it. Agabus made application to it, the error was on the human side and not on the God side. What is the purpose of prophetic utterances? How does prophecy function, this is what gets really weird, on Sunday mornings in the corporate assembly of a church today, or does it function at all? And then I want to kind of end by sharing this one last thing with you. Have you ever seen Johnny Erickson taught a dance? Know who she is? Spent the last... 50 years in a wheelchair. Um, dove off the pier when she was 17, quadriplegic. God has used her immensely everywhere. But I've never seen her outside of her wheelchair. Have you? Have you ever seen her dance? I did one time. She was um, at a, I think it was in Africa. She was preaching to a, a large crowd and the music was playing and she just closed her eyes, and you can talk that she was just caught up in the worship of the Lord, and she's got those metal things on her wrist that keep her wrist from flopping, and she's got just a little movement in her hand, and she grabbed the wheels of her wheelchair, and just as little as she can with her mobility, she inched forward and leaned back, and inched forward and leaned back, you know, almost into, you basically almost couldn't see it, with her eyes closed, and she was dancing to the music. And it dawned on me that Johnny Erickson Tata would give anything to be able to do what I can do and don't. Let that sink in. I have been blessed far more than her, but I don't want to dance in front of the Lord. I don't want to do those kind of things. I don't want to do what she would give her life to be able to, be, to do again. And the same thing applies with spiritual gifts. That you and I have been blessed beyond measure. And yet we fail to 
exercise these or even to believe these or even to contemplate that maybe, maybe there's more to the spiritual life than you and I are experiencing right now. But in, in doing so, it, it, it involves change, it involves stretching, it involves pain, it involves rejection, it involves incredible blessings. So I'm, I'm asking you, I have been praying that God would do something great in our church for a long time. And I want him to, don't you? Man, I want to see a powerful move of God. I've never seen a powerful move of God. Snibblets, glimpses, but I've never, I've never seen him move like I believe he wants to. And I'm asking you to open up your heart, open up your mind, open up your spirit. Just be willing to let him be the God that he is and to move you. And by definition, all of us into where he wants us to go for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.